you have your Bibles, we'll be looking at Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 22. The message is entitled, The Cross-Training of Jesus. Let me read this passage to you. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and I said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And when Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others say, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged him to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to, to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This morning we're going to look at four quick vignettes that lead up into this idea of the cross-training of Jesus. Point number one in our outline is blindness reversed, verses 22 to 26. Second, Baptist reveal, verses 27 to 30. Third, behind me, Satan, verses 31 to 33. And finally, bearing the cross, verses 34 to 35. In blindness reversed, we see now Jesus is continuing on in his ministry of healing and miracles. This is a characteristic of Mark's gospel. And in this particular situation, we see a unique aspect of Jesus' healing because it is carried out in two different steps. The first thing that you'd probably want to know is that this miracle actually continues a series of miracles found in the gospel, and it fulfills a specific prophecy. Here's the prophecy. It comes from Isaiah chapter 35, verses 5 and 6. It reads, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. When this prophecy was fulfilled, because the people in the audience of the New Testament would be familiar more with the Old Testament than the New, they would 
be triggered by this. They'd go, oh my gosh, that's something that the Old Testament talked about. And so you remember Jesus is now the Messiah. So Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy that is now saying, here comes the anointed one, Jesus Christ. Now what is unique, however, in this particular miracle is that it happens in two steps. The first step is found in verses 23 to 24, where Jesus heals the man. It's an unusual thing. He spit on his eyes and then laid hands on him. This is kind of unusual. I don't recommend you actually try to do this yourself. But in so doing, we see that the healing is somewhat partial. It says when Jesus did this, that this man saw people, but they looked like trees that were walking. Again, a very unusual image. And then when we turn to verse 25, it says, Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. I think the gospel writers, when they write certain aspects of miracles or of sequenced events, it is not incidental, it is intentional and purposeful. And in this, Mark Strauss, a New Testament commentator, writes this in his quote, the failure of Israel's religious leaders to see and hear the message of the kingdom of God is contrasted with the man's restoration of sight and the two-stage healing represents the disciples' gradual progression towards spiritual understanding. Now let me explain to you what that quote means. The people of Israel, the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees in particular, were basically blind and deaf to the person of Jesus. They just outright rejected him. Whereas this man who was being healed, he, of course, has a two-step process in which he is fully healed. Now, the disciples, they don't quite get it yet. You might say they were clueless. But they're getting there, and they get there through a gradual process. Strauss tells us, and I probably agree with him, that the two-step process is something that's gradual. And so as it's indicative of the healing of the blind man being gradual, it is indicative of the reception of the disciples of understanding who Jesus actually is. We'll see later on in this paragraph that actually Peter gets it because he's kind of a type A personality, a little bit more impulsive and, and more straightforward. But the other guys were pretty much still clueless. And so again, the significance of this blindness being reversed is it is a commentary on the response of the people around them. We'll probe this a little bit further as we apply it to our own situation where perhaps for some of us, we also experience a gradual revelation of understanding Jesus. That leads to our second point, Baptist reveal. I'm using the motif of how often young families, when they're trying to determine the gender of the baby, they have a baby reveal. The Baptist reveal happens to be reference to one of the persons that is mentioned here in verse 28. In this next section, verses 27 to 30, we see that there's a lot of confusion that people were having about Jesus. 
not only were the disciples who were hanging out with Jesus not knowing it, but certainly the crowds who were watching Jesus had no idea who he was. So Jesus now instigates a conversation with the disciples as they are moving towards Caesarea Philippi. And he asks them this question in verse 27. Who do people say that I am? And they respond. They give three answers. They told them John the Baptist, Elijah, and one of the prophets. Now, why these three individuals? Well, the prophets were significant because in this context, they were the ones who were the mouthpieces of God. Prophets were people who spoke on behalf of God. Elijah was significant because he didn't die. If you remember, he went up in a chariot. And so he is kind of revered by the Jewish people as this guy who's immortal. He never died. And then John the Baptist, because of his sequential and timely role, in that between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there were 400 years of silence. Nothing was being written. Nothing was being said. The first person to come on the scene in the New Testament is John the Baptist. And I always tell this to my students at the seminary. He's actually not really Baptist, if I could be honest. He's not into potlucks and committees. That's not the point. He's actually a baptizer. That's his role. But his other role is that John is a forerunner. He comes to announce an important message. And the message is, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God, as he refers to it, is not a place. Rather, it's a personification. It's Jesus. Jesus is the inaugural entrance of the kingdom of God into this larger entity known as the rule and reign of Jesus. In John chapter 10, verse 9, for example, Jesus uses an interesting metaphor. He says, I am the door. And if you think about a door, what does a do door do? It serves to give you entrance into a larger building. Jesus is the door to the kingdom of God, and that's what he's referring to. And John the Baptist was revered because after 400 years of silence, he becomes the guy that gets to make this announcement. Now, you may recall John the Baptist earlier in Mark's gospel was executed. He was beheaded. And so some people thought Jesus was the resurrected, reincarnated John the Baptist. And if you can imagine how frightful that would be if you saw that. Well, Jesus continues in verse 29, and then he asks them, but who do you say that I am? And no surprise, Peter. Yes, Peter. You are the Christ. Ding, 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 ding. He got it right. The million-dollar question was answered with the million-dollar answer. You are the Christ. In the account in Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 16, there is a parallel account. Jesus adds more comment to Peter's response. Peter says, you are the Christ. And then Christ responds in Matthew 16, 18, that upon you, Peter, will I build the church. There's a play on words there because Peter in Greek is the word petros, which actually means rock. And rocks were usually the foundation to which buildings would be placed upon. And so what Jesus is alluding to in Matthew's gospel is that Peter is foundational to the church. And that's certainly true when you read through the book of Acts. He would be the apostle who reaches out cross borders from the Jewish contingency to reach out to the Gentiles. So Peter got the answer right. But yet a more bizarre statement at the end of verse 30. Look what it says. 
And Jesus now strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Now, this is, again, very fascinating. If the disciples were starting to get a clue to who Jesus was, and Jesus is this important messenger who brings the gift and message of salvation, why wouldn't he want the news to spread? The answer will come again in the next paragraph, but we'll see that the bottom line is he did not want his mission from God to be interrupted. Let me say that again. Jesus did not want the mission from God to be interrupted. Just a little background here. In the Gospels, Jesus was perceived as a religious, not as a religious person, but more as an insurrectionist, a political figure who would rise up and lead people against the Roman government. That's how he was perceived. And the reason why people thought that because of the prophecies of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah was a major prophet, 66 chapters in his book, and he speaks of a king who will come in the future who will establish a new kingdom. Now, it's true that is a reference to Jesus, but that is a reference to his second coming, not his first. And so the Romans, seeing Jesus now gaining popularity, gaining the crowds, they thought, this is the guy who's going to cause that trouble in the first time. But wait, they forgot other passages like Isaiah 53, where Jesus is the suffering servant, where he has to suffer. He dies. He takes on our sins. That's the first coming. In other words, the mission of Jesus was to go to the cross to die on our behalf for our sins, to take away the sins of the entire world. But in order for him to be able to do that, he had to be free, not incarcerated, because of political reasons. That's why here and in the next paragraph, he tells people, don't say that I'm the Christ. Because if they knew that, then they would put him in jail rather than let him accomplish his mission to go to the cross. Which leads us again now to this important section here. The section again is clarifying Jesus and who he is. So let me ask you a few questions that are likened to the statement that Peter made when he said you are the Christ. Today, in the 21st century, 2019, do we recognize who Jesus truly is? Not just a guy with long hair and sandals who taught a few nice things. Christ means the anointed one. He's the Messiah. He's the Savior. He's the fulfillment of what the entire Old Testament points to that now personifies and culminates in the person of Jesus. And Jesus' mission was to come to die on the cross to save people from their sins. This is the essence of the good news of the gospel. The gospel is the saving message that Jesus not only personified but proclaimed. It's a message that if you understand, then you will un eternally enter into relationship with God Almighty forever. More on that later. Let's go to our third point. Famous statement, behind me, Satan, verses 31 to 33. Things are starting to get stirred up. It's interesting, when you tell people, don't say anything, that usually goes the other way. People start saying, well, I'm not supposed to say this, but... Let me just tell you, I trust you. And it goes everywhere, right? Especially in church. Well, this is what happens here. Verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders 
and the chief priests and his scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. For the first time now, Jesus is revealing the scenario that's going to be played out. And it's not a pretty picture. It's a road of hardship and suffering. And he's actually telling the plan to the disciples so that at some level they would ready themselves. Some of you know my wife right now is in Korea. She is there in part to give tribute to the passing of her father who passed about 16 years ago. Secondly, she is sharing the gospel with an uncle who is terminally ill and he does not know Christ. So she took him to church this morning. So we're praying that, that goes well. And in anticipation of my wife leaving for 10 days, I sat down with my boys and I said, guys, here's the plan. I'm not going to cook for you. <laughs> and they're like, tell us something we don't know. I mean, of course. <laughs> and so I actually said, but we have a limited amount of money, so let me lay out exactly what we're going to eat on what day, and including what restaurants, and who's going to cover our meal and some freebies that we get. And then Zach said, I miss Oma. <laughs> For them, it was a road of suffering. But they're ready for it. The intention is to soften the blow so that they would actually be able to withstand the blow. Jesus is doing that with the disciples. He's letting them know, hey, they're going to really go after you because of me. Your association with me, your camaraderie with me means that you also will suffer. You will be persecuted and potentially even killed. That's the reality. And that's the mission of Christ. But pick up now with me in verse 32. Because again, here it is. Peter, oh Peter, dear Peter. He's the first to speak almost always. But it's a speaking that's sometimes not wise. It's the speaking where it's open mouth, insert foot type situation. And here's what he said, verse 32. And he said this plainly, this is Jesus. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Stop there. Can you imagine that? Jesus is being rebuked by Peter. Wow. Does Peter realize what's going on here? Obviously not. But I think his intention was good. And Jesus now turns to him in verse 33 and said, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. There's a lot of interpretations of what that means. Does it, does it mean that Peter actually resumed the actual person of Satan? Or does it mean that he was influenced by Satan? I probably would lean towards the latter. Because the last thing that Satan would want Jesus to do is to fulfill that mission of the cross. You understand, right? And so in that, perhaps the influence of Satan on Peter was to try and stop Jesus so that he wouldn't actually go to Calvary. Well, the commentary at the end says, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You see, Jesus had to reveal that the role of suffering was coming in the future. But the suffering will ultimately lead to glory. And we have to understand that that's probably a pattern. It's a pattern of a walk that Jesus did himself. 
that when we die and go to heaven with Christ, we will be with him in glory. But as you think of individuals who are on that pathway in the process, many of them are living and experiencing anything less than something glorious. It could be slow, painful disease like cancer. It could be a, an accident. It, it could be a heart attack. It, it could be starvation. There are many things that are painful. But in Christ, what he promises as you go through that journey is that you will ultimately hit glory because you will be with the glorious one himself. Amen? And when you understand that, it makes everything worth it. You see, the disciples were kind of still kind of green. They didn't realize what was going on. They hadn't ripened and matured yet. And Jesus is preparing them because eventually they would be ready to do this. And they would be 11 men who would change the world of which the reverberations of that impact continue today even in the 21st century. So Jesus now setting them up for probably the most famous and difficult teaching in the Gospel of Mark, verses 34 and 38. And I've entitled it, Bearing the Cross. Let me read it to you again. Verse 34, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever will lose his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus sets up ironic statements, and he begins with this idea of, if you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself and take up the cross. Wow. You remember that the most shameful and painful Roman means of death and persecution, punishment, the capital punishment of Romans, was carrying a cross, which was usually done as a self-admission that I am a criminal and that because of that I am on my way to go and be persecuted and ultimately terminated. And Jesus is yet now using that language to talk in a radical manner. And in the irony, starting in verse 35, look how this sets up. Whoever wants to save his life must lose it. What? Whoever loses my life for the gospel's sake will save it. Verse 36, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Verse 37, what does a man give in return for his soul. And for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed. Jesus takes known social structures and he flips them. Everyone would want to gain the world. But he'd say, what's more important? What's more valuable? Gain the world and forfeiting your soul or losing your life so that ultimately you could save it? This is a challenging statement. But in so doing, what was the intent of all this? Mark Strauss again gives this clarification in this quote. He says this, Whoever 
wishes to be his disciple must renounce their own ambitions and follow Jesus wholly, even to the point of death. That's what the cross signifies. Paradoxically, to lose one's life for Jesus and for the gospel means to gain true life. Let me read that line again. That's so touching. That's so true. Paradoxically, to lose one's life for Jesus and for the gospel means to gain true life. Wow. Have you ever thought about that? Lose to gain. Hmm. My life for the gospels. Bearing the cross. In a sense, denouncing what you would have what you would call yours. You see, what's amazing about this is this seems like a very high bar. It seems like a very radical statement. But see, the radicalness of this didn't just happen. It was already modeled for us. See, Jesus is now foreseeing what he will do. He goes through the path of suffering. He gets wrongly persecuted and accused. He takes up the cross. He dies on the cross, and then he resurrects. In other words, he's not asking us to do something and say, well, why don't you try this? I'm going to go over here and just kind of drink some lemonade, and I'm going to have a good time, and I'll meet you in heaven. He doesn't do that. He himself goes through the pathway of suffering, and then he goes to glory. And he now invites disciples early on. We're only halfway through Mark's gospel. There's eight more chapters. But he's early on saying, join me in this journey. A journey that will be hard. A journey that will cost. And as radical as that may seem, that, my friends, is the norm of Christ. Could it be that in our day and age, our standards are so low that when we see a statement like this, as radical as it may seem, our first knee-jerk reaction is to dismiss it. Well, that's only for those people, you know, like the pastors and the missionaries and the pastor's wives, yeah, those people. No, no, it doesn't say that. It says, if anyone would come after me, it's a universal offer for all people. It's a demand to relinquish your own goals and ambitions in exchanging for the will of God. To yield to his lordship where he becomes not only the leader but the master of your life. And as we understand this, that becomes the norm of Christianity. I get to teach wonderful seminary students at the school that I'm at. Oftentimes I will counsel them in my office and they tell me stories about their churches. And honestly, sometimes the stories they tell me, they bring great sadness to me. Because the way that they proceed to do church and thus Christianity is such a low standard that I'm thinking, you're setting people up to not be able to respond to Jesus' norm. I don't want to do that with our church. Bridge, we want to follow Jesus well. And what that means is for each and every one of us to take seriously the statement and teaching of Jesus, to take up the cross, 
to follow him. Luke's gospel says in chapter 9 to follow him daily. It's not a one-time event. It's a continuous process. It's day by day, moment by moment, 24-7. Because it's not the Christian day on Sunday. It's the Christian life that extends all the way from now until however long God will allow you to be here on earth. And let me say this. It is the most powerful, it is the most logical, and it is the most wonderful place to be. Smack safe in the will of God. For some of you, you have not done this yet. You have not taken the plunge. So let me clearly just share with you briefly how to do this. The message and the essence of the message is the gospel. The gospel is this. Christ died for us. And that while we were sinners, he gave his life so that we would have eternal life. And when we recognize our utter sin that we are utterly lost without Jesus, our Savior. We relinquish our sin and we say, Jesus, I want to trust you. When we trust him, we now enter into a relationship with him, a relationship that lasts forever. It is quantitative as eternal life, and it is qualitative in that it is purposeful and meaningful. And when we enter into that kind of relationship, he promises that he will never leave you and he will never forsake you. As we do this, we enter it not just individually, we enter it corporately. So we enter into what the Bible calls the body of Christ or the family of God. That's now demonstrated in the church. What you see around you is the church, the body of Christ, believers. It will become more meaningful when you come to relationship with Christ. And so I ask you this morning, where are you with Jesus? Do you know who he is? Maybe you're in that gradual process if you are Let's get you there to the final product where you actually come to know him personally. If you have more questions, I will be available after the service to chat with you. Let's look at three applications and we'll conclude with our central truth. Here we go. Number one, how long does it take for us to truly recognize who Jesus is? Especially in light of all the evidence and also how Jesus has met us personally. We've been doing the membership interviews this morning. They've been really wonderful. And I've asked almost everyone to recount how you came to Christ and when. And oftentimes you were introduced to Jesus in an early year, maybe in middle school or even younger. But then you'd say, but then I really recognized who he was at this point. And that's when I gave my life to Christ. That's that gradual process. I think these things happen. And what I would hope that, that you are either in process or that you have finished this process so that you have come to know who Christ really is. Number two, do we also get confused about the identity of Christ? As a result, do we undermine his role and calling to carry out and calling to carry out the will of God? Recognition should lead to reception. Peter didn't get this. He's rebuking Jesus. Wow. Can you believe that? And in so rebuking him, his attempt, maybe as well-intentioned as it was, was trying to be, it would have ultimately tried to derail Jesus' mission to go to the cross. I wonder sometimes in our identity confusion of Jesus, we switch roles, where rather than he being the master, we serve him, we try to switch it and say, Jesus, why don't you serve me? Well, let's see, what, what do I want first? Oh, let, let me get that fire insurance from that H-E double toothpick so that I can live forever with Christ. That's a good one. That's, that, hey, spiritual gifts, I want this one, this one, that one. Can I sign up for that? Oh, by the way, give me a perfect mate, spouse, perfect kids, uh, chindoke, uh, 
a house, a gas station, economic car. Wait a second. Who is God? You or Him? We can request, but we cannot demand. I wonder if our confusion leads us to switch the roles. Leads to our third and final question. Is Jesus' radical statement our norm as well? Why or why not? Again, following Jesus is the most logical and safest posture we could ever be in because it is smack in the middle of the will of God. And to do anything contrary to that would be illogical, irrational, and just plain dumb. And so let me invite you not only to be smart, but to be safe and to be wise and to be thankful that he promises eternal security for you. Our central truth summarizes in this way. (coughs) Jesus calls us to recognize who he truly is and to receive his radical norm for our lives as we wholeheartedly follow him faithfully and daily. Let me read it one more time. Jesus calls us to recognize who he truly is and to receive his radical norm for our lives as we wholeheartedly follow him faithfully and daily. Let's pray together.